Hello and welcome to the Bank Sense podcast. We've just spent three days at Eurofinance, the world's largest treasury event. So while it's fresh in our minds, we thought we'd discuss how regulatory changes have been affecting the treasury industry and how some technology is helping to overcome those challenges. As treasury and finance is an ever-shifting mass of regulation and restrictions, we've sat down with two cash management experts to try and make sense of it all. Have a listen, see if you agree with their opinion on BAL3, CRD4 and other pressing regulatory changes. I'm here with David and James from BankSense to talk about some of the banking and regulatory changes that they believe will impact corporate treasury. David, how will CRD4 affect firms with business operations in the EU? So CRD4 um, will affect a number of financial institutions and credit institutions. So after the financial crisis um, in 2008, there was an overwhelming requirement by uh, regulators to create a sense of um, safety in the market. So um, before that point, we had financial institutions and credit institutions holding cash but not necessarily reporting it to regulators like the uh, Prudential Regulator, uh, Regulatory Authority as it's known today, which is the Bank of England. And uh, what happened there then, well we all know what happened there, we had a crash, we had um, banks you know, over leveraged. Um, so what CRD4 within the UK um, necessitates is that treasurers have a good view of their liquidity trends, so they'll have to have um, a view of their net negative positions along with the historical trends of how the balances are. Uh, during an operating month, a bank would have inflows of cash, outflows of cash. What the regulators are really interested in is the net negative position to so to illustrate they've got sufficient capital and they can cover that net negative position in an intraday basis. So what is required is um, quite a lot of manual reporting today. So you, you have um, treasurers who have to run reportings uh, every day that isn't automated. They have to look at MT950s, which is statement messages from institutions, and then break that down into what the net negative position is. Now, what cash management platforms allow um, is to have a trend analysis attached to it, but then it also automates that function and it shows it in a visual format. So if a treasurer were to sit down, uh, you know, he can click a button and look at his net negative position quite easily rather than reconciling on a day-by-day -day basis. Well, I think the BAL3 regulations are coming down the line like a, a freight train at the moment, and there's a lot of changes that both the banks are going to have to incorporate. If we take one element of BAL3, for example, the requirements on intraday liquidity reporting, yes. then we're going to see uh, some of the requirements that the banks have to comply with inevitably trickle down to the corporate sector because the banks are going to have to report on a new set of data or a new set of data requirements that they haven't uh, been reporting on previously and haven't ha had access to the data for. So uh, it'll be able, they'll be able to identify um, predictable patterns of behaviour. They'll be able to forecast patterns of behaviour in terms of currency flows. And those data sets inevitably will be made available to corporate treasurers of corporate entities. So they could, they could make good use of that type of inf information to uh, identify good payers, bad payers, predictable patterns, etc., and manage their own balance sheet more effectively. Um, so I think, I think that's the good piece. On the downside, um, depending on which side of the fence you sit on, 
then the banks are going to be able to identify um, exactly who is using and who are the consumers of that intraday liquidity. And I would say that an inevitable step is that they're going to start to charge for that. So corporates might find that where they are heavy consumers of intraday liquidity from their bank provider, they may start incurring a charge for that. Just to add on to um, top of what James has said there, we're going to have uh, what the Treasury Alliance calls the um, end of notional pooling. So notional pooling is a key tool of treasurers today whereby they can um, have um, multiple branches, multiple jurisdictions, multiple banks within those jurisdictions and pool balances together. So you could have one entity which is cash rich and one entity which isn't cash rich. As long as they have a bilateral agreement between them, um, they can net the position and not carry an overdraft where they don't have the cash. Um, however, with uh, BAL3, the um, insistence now from regulators is that this is not necessarily the correct way to conduct banking um, because you're not truly reflecting the capital position of a corporate entity at any given point. Um, you're almost hiding or shadowing um, the uh, position from another area. So um, IAS 32 or the um, Investment Accounting Standards which, um, have been, uh, which have been revised under the 30, 32nd version necessitate that these kind of pools be exposed and um, ad advised on. So what does this mean for corporates? Um, the, at the end of the day, a lot of the corporates today within Europe would be notional pooling, more so than the US, because in the US, the concept of an overdraft doesn't exist uh, for many corporates and uh, small to medium-sized enterprises. They would have to um, get a credit line to have that facility, whereas in the Europe, we allow an overdraft to occur and we charge an interest for it. Now, this whole concept of notional pooling has allowed for treasurers to carry on without um, having to sufficiently fund their entities. What this will mean is that now they'll need to have very hands-on um, visibility of cash positions across uh, various entities. And uh, tools like uh, BankSense would allow for them to quite easily and quite quickly be alerted to positions where um, they do have a short position so they can fund it because the future is uh, banks themselves aren't going to offer notional pooling. So uh, speaking to a number of large banks, um, as I have done in the past, their end strategy is to get rid of notional pooling just because of the regulatory requirements which stand, be stand behind it. And as James correctly said, uh, there's a larger scrutiny now on the bank's positions during the day. Um, the intraday liquidity positions. Now, if they're allowing this kind of bilateral um, agreement to be placed between branches, is that truly reflective of A, the client's position, and then B, the bank's position? Because the bank would inevitably have to net off against another one of their entities. Yes. So um, it's, it's, gonna, it's, it's a challenging time. And I think, um, well, we, uh, thankfully, you know, humanity always finds a way of uh, finding a solution, and we have. And, uh, fintechs are finding solutions for this and BankSense is um, a list of one of those products which would you know, certainly help a treasurer find alternatives to notional pooling. So having access to real-time information becomes much more important. Then. Yes, absolutely. And um, conducting trend an analysis and being aware, forecasting, these are key things which are going to become uh, a huge part in the way treasurers conduct themselves. If, if you take notional pooling within a provider out of the equation, then you have to have greater visibility on where your cash is 
um, and it has to be a bank agnostic solution because if you take away notional pooling, actually what you, you're probably going to end up with is that corporate treasury is going to have to bring in a process of physical pooling. So you're going to have to manually move these funds um, between providers. And so you need a solution. You need technology to sit between the corporate and the bank and, and, and aggregate that information and allow the corporate treasurer to, to make decisions to move the funds physically in the market. Um, but in order to do that, in order to make timely decisions, you need real-time information. David, what, what key changes to USITs and AIFMD do Treasury and finance professionals need to be aware of? So this one's probably more applicable to financial institutions and finance, finance professionals who are uh, typically looking after a um, USITs fund or AIF fund today. Um, will have to adhere to both of the directives and both of the di directives necessitate that the funds have easily convertible assets within them to cover any capital loss within the investments held in those collective schemes. So if you were to go out today and you know if you were to place your money and as Warren Buffett says you should place it in an index fund or a collective fund, right? So when, when you do that, a part of that fund has to have liquidity within it. Now the problem is, uh, within a fund manager, uh, is that they've got an order management system. So the order management system instructs trades through to a custodian via broker. And then you've got the custody record. So you've got the order management record, which is created by the actual fund manager. And then you've got the uh, record at custody. There isn't anywhere in between. So you've got the um, order management data, which isn't uh, necessarily the data that comes from the bank. And then the custody record is usually delayed. So when this happens, you um, have a mismatch at times um, because one settles before the other. So the liquidity that the fund manager has to be completely aware of isn't necessarily up to date. And there are, um, the, the, there are issues if you don't keep within that range and the fund doesn't become compliant after a certain point. So this basically means that treasurers um, or uh, oversight managers within those uh, fund manager or fund manager departments will have to have sight of the liquidity within each one of those funds um, to ensure that they a have convertible assets to hand, which includes cash and which includes money markets and which includes easily convertible instruments which you can take to cash without a loss or uh, without the loss of capital. So preservation of the um, initial capital is going to be important within that pool. So treasurers um, or oversight managers within those areas will have to keep a close eye on the liquidity availability within those funds. James, what large exposure restrictions, levies, structural measures do treasury and finance professionals need to adhere to? Large exposure restrictions, Danny, are one of the key strands of the new regulatory framework that banks in particular have got to adhere to. Uh, bank sense work primarily with corporates, but I think it's a regulation that uh, has some, some elements of best practice which can be applied to the corporate world because effectively what it's saying is that um, you are restricted in terms of how much of your balance sheet can be, can be held with an individual institution. Um, and what it's trying to, to seek to address is the risk that you, your organisation could be brought down 
by the failure of a market participant or a group of market participants. So I think what we're seeing is corporate treasurers, um, even in, in you know, SME enterprises all the way up, are starting to think about actually spreading the risk of the balance sheet across multiple providers. And that's how I think it's, it's trickling down. Again, in order to, to do that, then I think there's a role that technology can play to, to automate some of these, these rules um, and provide the relevant information when lines have been crossed or, or predefined limits have been breached. Uh, straight to corporate treasury so that corporate treasury's job doesn't become one of spending 80% of their day compiling information to make sure that they're complying with um, either large exposures in the case of, of a bank or, or a similar sort of um, internal risk framework that, that they've defined, devised for a corporate. Um, so I think it, it's, it's good practice that we're seeing across corporate treasury regardless of the type and, and size of organisation. You touched on levies as well. We're in an environment at the moment where actually customers are finding that they're incurring a levy on long balances in euros, for example, uh, in the form of negative credit interest. Because of that, we're going to, we're going to see a proliferation of, of alternatives. So this is a fairly uh, unique uh, situation which corporate treasurers are facing. And this is inevitably leading to the fintech community and, and other providers seeking to find ways using technology to allow corporate treasurers to make better use of their cash balances. And with the BankSense product, that's exactly the area of the market that we're, we're looking to address is to insert ourselves in between the corporate and the bank using technology and providing a, a software layer to allow corporate treasurers to gather information much quicker, uh, make more timely decisions and therefore deploy their cash balances in a more productive manner for better returns and avoiding some of these levies. So the liquidity coverage ratio, a very important part of the Bar Accords, as they define how much liquid assets should be held by FIs. How do these regulations affect those in the Treasury and finance world? Well, I think inevitably the, uh, the liquidity coverage ratio um, is, is something that the banks um, are, are going to be thinking increasingly about in terms of um, what deposits they want to attract to the balance sheet because there's, there's the concept of liquidity coverage ratio friendly or unfriendly deposits. In the case of LCR then I think what we're going to see is that banks are going to have less of an appetite to take on uh, unpredictable deposits or fluctuations in the deposit base because it impacts their ability to comply with LCR. So what the customers are going to be faced with is that banks will introduce measures um, to encourage predictable behaviour from their customer base. Um, and so that will inevitably trickle down then to the corporates and they'll be asked to manage their cash or, or manage them, their uh, balance sheet in ways that they, have, they possibly haven't before because uh, their, their activity has an impact on, on the bank's ability to manage the LCR. And so what I think that means is bringing this sort of full circle to, from a technology perspective, then those, those corporates need the right tools to be able to, to manage their balance sheet and their cash flows according to the bank's requirements. They can't simply have the onus put on them without having the right, um, the right levers in place to, to do so. What are the implications of the capital adequacy ratio on organisations looking to raise funds? So I think the, the capital adequacy ratio is inevitably going to have an effect on all types of organisations because um, ultimately the, the banks are going to be looking at that ratio and saying actually well the the capital to risk weighted assets 
Um, we need to make sure that we're above the specified tolerance, but the higher you get that, that ratio, then the better it looks from uh, an external perspective. So as uh, capital adequacy ratios uh, reduce the appetite of the bank to have those riskier assets uh, with a higher risk weighting on the balance sheet, then inevitably they're going to start removing some of those and that will, that will then lead to uh, higher costs of financing for organisations. The capital adequacy ratio has even become more of uh, an issue for uh, fund managers as well. So um, in operating the number of funds that they do, it, it is quite vital that they keep um, you know, a sufficient capital to cover any losses within a fund. So it's an industry-wide thing. And if you're a bank as well um, with investments, um, you, you have to have uh, restitution risk capital set aside as well. And it goes back to Basel III. So um, if, if, you, if you look at a bank today, they'll have um, very little appetite to have non-operating capital within their books because of what ha what's happened previously with the financial crisis. So for non-operating capital, they're trying to reduce that as much as possible, but they're, from a risk restitution perspective, they do have to keep a certain amount available. Yeah. However, it is an exposure. So um, monitoring these type of balances and liquidity uh, elements are very key for any institution. So James, liquidity stress testing. It's a term we typically associate with banks, but today it's something corporates are looking at more and more. How can treasury professionals identify, analyse, manage their risk uh, to ensure liquidity contingency planning? So again, Danny, I think liquidity stress testing is another example of banking regulation, which can be applied as a best practice to any corporate treasurer's risk and control framework. Um, and basically, the, the concept of liquidity stress testing says that you apply stress scenarios to your balance sheet and look at what the result would be. So that could be simple measures such as a, an increase in the unemployment rate or change to interest rates, all the way through to simulating uh, historical events such as 9-11 to see what that impact that would have on your current balance sheet. Uh, again, it's just good practice that organisations, um, even where it's not regulatory mandated, um, should be looking at some of these as, as be best practice uh, for their, their risk and control framework. I believe that the, the concept of liquidity stress testing should be something that, that a corporate should be able to, to really just click a button on a piece of software and simulate some of these, these tests on a day-to-day -day basis because of course the balance sheet fluctuates on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. So we should move away from it being a, a weekly or a monthly exercise to more of a continuous exercise. And, we're providing the types of solutions and the types of data sets in our, in our software that will allow a corporate treasurer to, to do that and have a much, a much greater visibility, not just of the balance sheet and his current liquidity positions, but also what those positions would look like under certain events. But we've covered quite a lot of different regulations today. And I think um, one of the other things that um, we have to be aware of as we, as we cover all these different types of regulation and risk management practices is that not only is there a lot of them, but there's a lot of scope for uh, national interpretations of how it gets implemented. And potentially what that can lead to is even more complexity in the regulatory landscape because what, what you end up with is regulatory arbitrage where um, organisations are basically playing off uh, national or geographic um, interpretations of the regulation against each other. And so just, just further complicating some of the way that these regulations are, are interpreted and corporate treasurers have to, have to then manage um, from a balance sheet perspective in terms of what's going what's to derive the best value for the organisation.
of CRD4, which we discussed earlier on, is an interpretation of an element of uh, BAL3. So you have this um, split of regulations being interpreted by different regulators. So you might have different reporting requirements within different regions. So what, what does that mean from a treasurer's standpoint is that they have multiple reportings to be done across multiple areas. Again, this issue of trend is, is going to be very important. And uh, to James's point on the um, stress testing element um, is very applicable to treasurers today. So the seasonality of treasury operations means that most large treasuries have an in-house bank. So these in-house banks act, act as banks within, within the organization. From their perspective, applying um, these types of uh, stress test scenarios to uh, seasonality, so you might have uh, Christmas shopping, Black Friday, um, any of those type of events, they can calculate how to best utilize the liquidity that comes out of those events through historical trend analysis. And that's where these fintech tools really come into their own. Products like BankSense really allow um, a trend analysis to be done without going into spreadsheets because you can click a tab, put your dates in, and then it shows you the historic trend within that uh, within a certain period as well. Particularly in a depressed rate environment like we are at the moment, then um, we've taken the view at BankSense that real-time information is only the start of it. And actually, as David alluded to, what you need to get to is forecasting um, an automated generation of predictive data, because only then can you start to make uh, best use of your liquidity because um, there will be scenarios where liquidity dries up late in the day and so if you're spending all your time gathering information um, then you have very little time to invest that you're going to be faced with uh, more punitive rates and so we're using technology at BankSense to, to give uh, customers, corporate treasurers the, the opportunity to, to invest based on forecasted information, uh, based on predictive analytics that we generate uh, before the information has, has, has actually even, or before the event has actually even happened. David, on European money market fund regulations, what are the key impacts for corporate treasurers? So the European money market regulation mirrors um, a US regulation which um, came into force around September last year. Um, the European money market regulations aren't going into full effect till mid-2018. So the key difference for treasuries is going to be that they're going to have uh, access to more um, money markets as a result of some changes which are happening. So today you've got a constant um, NAV money market fund and you've got a variable um, money market fund or a floating NAV money market fund. And that's going to now change to constant and variable, but then you're going to have a low volatility NAV as well. Why is this important? A survey was conducted recently uh, from a treasury standpoint and 58% uh, of treasurers advise that they would um, like to uh, reassess their strategy in terms of investing money market funds. In terms of who utilises these, 53% of treasurers in EMEA utilise money market funds because we're in an environment where uh, we're in a depressed um, interest environment, we're in a negative interest environment, which all means that a treasurer has to have um, access to other instruments to um, make some money through. Um, so money markets are the uh, default choice, um, but even within that, through these changes, treasurers are going to need to change their strategy. Now in terms of changing their policy, um, treasurers will need to provide evidence of the trends of the accounts that they're looking to add money markets to. And this is where tools like BankSense come in because they can draw down the data from a tool like uh, BankSense and then have 
a portfolio of data to present to a bank to say we've got 150 million across 30 days we're perfect candidate for a stable nav or a um, low volatile uh, nav as well. James, David, it's been very insightful having you here. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for listening to the Bank Sense podcast. If you're interested in finding out more about our cash management platform, visit us at bank-sense.com.